This is Oakley Anderson Moore, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. When you start out as a filmmaker, you think that all you have to do is make a great film. And basically, file export is the pop of the champagne cork where your film shoots up into the cultural ether, landing at the top of all the must-see trending lists. But in reality, it's damn hard to get people to even hear about your film, let alone watch it. Even if you play a prestigious festival like Sundance, for most filmmakers, the success of your film depends in large part on a well-thought-out and executed distribution strategy. So what constitutes a successful distribution strategy? Who better to illuminate us than Liz Manischel, the manager of the Creative Distribution Initiative at the Sundance Institute. Liz sat down with myself and Eric Lures, the No Film School managing editor, who happens to know a thing or two about theatrical release strategies from his time served at IFP's Screen Forward. From the state of distribution for indie films at this past Sundance to how to get a distributor to notice you at any festival, there's a lot of information in this podcast to prepare experienced and beginning filmmakers on how to maximize the life of your film after you finish it. This is Oakley from No Film School, and I am sitting down with Liz Manischel, who is the manager of the Creative Distribution Initiative at Sundance. We're so glad to have her here, and we're going to pick her brain about the sort of distribution options for filmmakers in this early part of 2018. Liz, thanks for being here with us. Uh, thank you so much. This is really exciting. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I mean, it really is. <laughs> and I'm also sitting next to Eric Lures, who you may know as the No Film School Managing Editor. And we thought it would be really cool to bring Eric on because he used to work he came to know film school from IFP, where he helped oversee the Screen Forward series, which is this really cool program that allowed filmmakers in the process of self-distribution or micro-distribution to get a coveted week-long theatrical run in New York. So we thought, Eric, that you might have a lot of stuff to add to this conversation as well. Cool. I hope so. Thanks for having me on as well. We'll find out if he does or not. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of pressure. <laughs> so, Liz, thanks so much for talking to us. We talked to... Um, a counterpart of yours about two years ago. We had My boss. Yes. <laughs> Chris Horton and Ryan Koo had a discussion about this emerging options of distribution. And I guess the first thing I'd like to ask you is, you know, since that conversation, and that was a time period where basically they were thinking these late night deals that once were sort of mainstay, that wasn't exactly happening anymore. There were new players. There was Amazon, there was Netflix, there was direct to fan options. Those were sort of just coming onto the scene. So here we are two years later. It's not that much later, but a lot has changed. Can you just give us a breakdown of like what's different since we had that conversation last? Sure. And I, I don't know when this podcast will air, so some of the things might change. But in this Tuesday, the 23rd, <laughs> um, this is, I guess, my perspective. Um, you know, we thought we th we heard that Netflix and Amazon Prime and, and Hulu weren't necessarily going to be coming to the table this year for acquisitions. They were really more interested in original content. And um, what's interesting is last year or in previous years, those powerhouses really had a lot of the control over the market at Sundance, right? So they swooped up and took a lot of the titles. And this year, from my meager perspective, maybe as a filmmaker and not officially Sundance opinion, um, it's been a little bit of a slower um, acquisition announcement scenario where uh, one may guess that distributors had been scared off in the past by these major SFOD platforms or um, 
that the market is a little bit in a holding pattern, not really sure how to acquire titles for large sums of money the way these SVOD platforms were doing. So we're in a very interesting state right now. I mean, um, we were talking, I was talking with some friends yesterday where we get all the emails when acquisitions are announced. And as of yesterday, I think there was only like three um, in the whole festival. And then today uh, there were three. So it's bizarre how um, last year was a lot more happening. I yeah, guess. how would that compare to like last year? If, we're, if you're seeing three today, three yesterday, last year, the, a more realistic number from would have been. I just remember getting emails all the time. Like a lot more. I remember it being like Netflix nabs this, you know, Amazon hmm. nabs this, whatever it is. Um, and this year, there seems to be some of some of these non traditional. Uh, you know, two players coming together for one buy or, um, you know, just less announcements in the festival. I mean, we're in the slow end of the festival right now. We're in the second end, second second part. And do you think distributors are kind of maybe holding, you know, waiting a little bit longer, I guess, to kind of see how deals are being played out, what the numbers are kind of looking like. Before. Right. Maybe Seeing what the market suggests. Market suggesting. Right Instead now. of like putting out the numbers that Netflix was last year. Right. Yeah, maybe. I also, you know, I've been talking to filmmakers. They, I get to sometimes have these meetings and there are, been some films that do have deals that are not announcing and I don't know what that's about either I'm trying to kind of parse that in my mind a little bit well yeah that's interesting I mean why what do you think would benefit a, a filmmaker or a distribution company to not announce uh I don't know I mean there's the idea of momentum coming out of the festival you don't want to lose that momentum I don't I I can't quite put it together so it's a mystery to me right now. And, you know, we run a fellowship at Sundance where we encourage filmmakers um, who choose not to make all rights deals. So I'm not going to say that it's like really exciting for us, but it is. It's really OK. I'm saying it. It's really <laughs> exciting for us because that means there's potentially some filmmakers who are going to piece deals together and do some creative distribution um, unless they're just keeping it a secret. And so for some of those filmmakers then that may uh, come to you guys are they what are their kind of main goals for the project is it still like a theatrical release as kind of a end goal or is that perhaps something that kind of kicks off the film's journey we've previously seen that as kind of open in theaters get your reviews go on demand and we kind of move forward or is that kind of theatrical now seen as like a launching pad to really go further and find your audience with that film it still feels like theatrical is the uh the director's you know, desire. Like, we all hear this all the time. I want to see my film on the big screen. This film deserves a theatrical release. Things, you know, of that nature, verbiage of that nature. Um, I wouldn't really say that filmmakers that we're talking to are seen as a means to an end. They're not talking about it as, if we get a theatrical, we'll, we'll get better placement on VOD uh, buckets and, and rooms. Um, they, the ones that we talk, talk to recognize they may get better press if they do a theatrical release. Um, but when we talk to filmmakers, we always ask, you know, what are your goals? Um, I learned this from my mentor, Peter Broderick, you know, is it, is it eyeballs? Is it impact or is it revenue? And, um, usually it's, you know, it's recouping at the very least recouping and, um, just, uh, but it doesn't really feel like a lot of filmmakers want to put in the amount of time and energy necessary to really give to a film's release. Maybe that's cynical, but that's what we're seeing. 
Yeah, I was wondering, you know, what you just mentioned that you 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 mentioned Peter Broderick and the goals. Yeah. You know, a lot of there might be a lot of filmmakers listening who are just starting out and they don't even understand what the goals are because I think yeah. for some people they think, oh, I just need to get into Sundance. That would be the goal, but that's not really the goal. Yeah. Can you talk? Can you elaborate on on the different things you just talked about for people that haven't sure. actually heard of that? Cause, yeah, and yeah. I realize it came in a little hot too. Like I'm just jumping into like my business <laughs> speak. So let me just like calm down a little bit and like talk like a human. Um, so when you make a movie, I'm a filmmaker, right? A lot of, we're filmmakers and we're in creatives. And we usually make films because of this like immense itch in ourselves, like in our heart to get content out, to get something from our heads out into the world. So when you put a lot of time and resources into something, a lot of cognitive dissonance occurs where you feel this need to either make a lot of money to make up for it or you know, find as many people as possible to watch it, which is eyeballs, or make an impact and try to change the world. And usually we hear those impact answers from documentary filmmakers, but I love to hear them from fiction filmmakers as well. So when you um, are about to release a film, the option, clearly all options are important, but the option you choose to prioritize is the one that informs your distribution strategy. So if someone were to say eyeballs, then we would say, let's get that sucker up on a, an SVOD, you know, Netflix, Hulu, or Amazon Prime, because there's a massive subscriber base, and it's the quickest way to get as many people as possible. So that's the kind of line of thinking we're, we're on right now. And being on an SVOD platform, uh, of course, it's available to so many more people than it would be if it was a theatrical release, a standard theatrical release. Mm -hmm. But does that also kind of still make you a smaller fish in a large pond still how am I going to bring people to knowing that I exist on right. those platforms and you need to market your yeah. title and that's yeah. all you know basically we're a department that wants to support filmmakers and their goals but um internally we have our own you know agenda that we like to push we want filmmakers to be really in the know on how to market an audience build in smart and efficient ways and also we really want filmmakers or storytellers to know who their audience is so when you're on those SVOD platforms there's no data on you know whether your audience is mainly you know women 25 to 40 in um, the south there's no way of telling who's really appreciating and drawn to your work. So we try to supplement um, a filmmaker's release in different ways, maybe a digital ad spend to target your film and um, to target your audience and see who converts the most to like your page or rent your film or things like that. All of this data can inform an a filmmaker's entire career. So if they can figure out that the South really likes their work, then you can be more efficient in your ad spend and you could direct all attention towards Netflix to women in the South. Yeah. I don't know what this film is, but I want to see it. I want to see it. <laughs> and if, if I don't have a distributor yet and I, my film is playing in festivals, are there things that I can be doing collecting email addresses and contact yeah. information? And how, if I do have a packed house at a festival screening, how am I making sure that they're going to kind of continue on that film's journey with me yeah. six months down the line, a year down the line? 
Yeah, um, I can you? (laughs) You can, you can. Um, My approach has always just been to be like, sign up for my email list to every single person leaving the theater. No, (laughs) no, that is what you do. And a lot of filmmakers are very afraid of doing that. And actually, I don't know if Sundance Film Festival encourages that. Probably not. So I'm going to speak about all opportunities outside of Sundance Film Festival. Just having a clipboard with a printed out, you know, lined piece of paper that says, you know, name, email address, and maybe even comments, and to pass it around during the Q&A for your screening uh, is a really personal, fast DIY way to audience build. Um, When I toured with my film in 2014 and 2015, I did that, and I have 1,300 people on my mailing list. And that's, you know, to a major marketing institution, that's not that much, but to me, you know, that number will hopefully grow and not uh, diminish, we'll see, <laughs> um, in the coming years so that I can build up my personal audience. And then, you know, you do the same where you direct that audience via email to Facebook, to Twitter. And then distributors, um, as we all know, uh, they want to make a buck, right? So if you can show them an engaged, invested audience on these social media platforms, you've convinced them that they are going to have customers to watch your film. So it may help you get that distribution deal. So, you know, since you have now a year since last Sundance, two years since the Sundance before, I was wondering, having now the perspective to see what has worked, what hasn't, are there any, you know, case studies that you can think of that you can share with, share with us either about a film that had a success story, trying some new distribution ideas, or, or a cautionary tale. One or both would be interesting. Now that you had some time to look back, you know, it's hard now. You don't know how something will play out this year. But, but looking back at a year or two. Yeah, well, um, the thing is our department, so our department, the Creative Distribution Initiative, we give these grants to films that, you know, decide to not do all rights deals. And we... Uh, encourage that this money to be used for digital marketing and in exchange for the support and advisement and mentorship we ask for transparency. We only have three films uh, under this uh, I don't know new evolution of our department and that's First Girl I Loved which was uh, a next film in 2016, Uh, Columbus which was a next film of 2017 and Unrest which was a documentary of 2017 Sundance Film Festival all three Sundance Film Festival and um, you know we saw that the more that the team gets involved with marketing with the uh, trailer with the poster with the voice of the film in social media with uh, audience engagement and figuring out who that target audience is the better the film does so for example Columbus uh, premiered at last year's festival Uh, became our first fiction film of our fellowship and worked their asses off for the past year. And they did tremendously. And they did, uh, I don't want to compare it to other Sundance titles. Other Sundance titles are fabulous and are, you know, have creative, wonderful teams involved. But they had um, a P&A spend that was a lot less than other titles this year. And they broke a million dollars at the box office and they had an insanely successful theatrical run and they're doing really well digitally. I think they were number 17 in the charts yesterday and they were released digitally um, a while ago. So for us, from our vantage point, it's always better if the filmmaking team is involved and it's not just handing the film off to the distributor and walking away. 
the filmmakers we work with don't have traditional all rights, all rights distributors, but they're still film bookers that they correspond with regularly and social media managers that they correspond with regularly. So um, it's important that your teammates really um, absorb from the filmmakers what the, what the vision for the film is. You know, you mentioned that their P&A budget was a lot smaller than some other films in, in their arena. So, you know, what exactly did they do that, you know, they're working hard and they did something that made up for that? What kind of tactics were they employing? Well, um, Columbus's film is a really great theatrical title in the sense of, you know, all the, all the things we talk about, like grandiose cinematography and, you know, sweeping, abstract, rich themes, you know, just things... Um, it's really a film you need to sit and watch uh, undisturbed, I think. And uh, Koganada, the director, it's his first feature, he already established a following of cinephiles. So that combination of having this film that really is appropriate for a theatrical run and a director who has uh, a really passionate audience base, and then, of course, John Cho, Parker Posey, Haley Richardson, the fabulous cinematography. Um, the combination of that, I think, is what made it do very well. And also, they worked with Landmark Change, so I thought that was—I think that was a really appropriate uh, decision that the filmmaking team made. And what if I'm a filmmaker who really wants to get that word out about my upcoming release, but I'm just not very comfortable with like social media speak and like marketing speak, and I just don't know how to sell it in that way or to kind of engage my audience uh do I kind of look for other partners or how do I kind of find the right voice to sell my film which I as a filmmaker may feel is a little is different than just too overwhelming to think about well I'll I'll take off my Sundance hat I'm going to answer that as a micro budget feature filmmaker because I I really actually love working with filmmakers who are uncomfortable with marketing speak and uncomfortable with like the robot, you know, yeah. the inhuman robot. Uh, <laughs> so um, we highly encourage storytellers to speak in their own voice. If they're self-deprecating, if they're uncomfortable, if they like to use humor, if they um, like to push boundaries, uh, that's that's the voice of the film as well. The, the artists define the voice of the campaign. So what we encourage is to use first person when you market your title, and I say things like a suit. I realize that, like market your title. But like when you're on Facebook and you're writing a Facebook status about come to my movie, you know, tell us how much it means to you that people come to your movie and be emotional and be genuine. That's something a corporation rarely does. And it brings people in a lot easier. Um, and it brings in people who really want to support you rather than, you know, Jennifer movie number two needs your help and buy tickets today. That's not going to draw people in the way a really genuine uh, human post is going to. And have you noticed too, I remember in a post for uh, First Girl, I loved, you kind of spoke about the ROI for different social media platforms for that film and how I think Facebook was its best uh, social media platform. Do you kind of find, how do you find that maybe... Twitter is more right for, for this project or Facebook is going to lead to more sales on iTunes because based on the clicks that we're finding, uh, how does that kind of science and math kind of play into it? It's a lot of testing and you could do testing in very informal ways. You know, you could do a Google form. So that's why we encourage people to have email lists and do MailChimp accounts or whatever 
non-corporate sponsored <laughs> newsletter list we can refer to on this podcast. Um, but that newsletter list is now your focus group. So you can go and you could just do a quick Google poll and you could say, can you take five seconds and answer if you use, you know, which one do you use most? And that email list is your core audience. Mm -hmm. So that may help um, you decide what to, uh, what platform to use when promoting your film. But also um, just looking at the conversions per platform and doing one ad and testing it on each platform could be an idea. One, uh, and then just finally, another idea is there are certain uh, perceptions about Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And it's not orthodoxy, so I don't know if I should even say, but you know, I can say Instagram seems to run young. So, you know, if you have a film that's really a millennial audience, maybe you target Instagram. Or if you have a film, or if you have a filmmaker who really speaks in images rather than words, you focus on Instagram. Things like that, I think, are helpful. You know, you mentioned earlier when when you were first bringing up the three films that um, you have a transparent access to. You mentioned trailers, and since we're talking a little, more, a little bit more nuts and bolts, I mean, a trailer is something that can be very important, but is sometimes very hard for filmmakers to figure out. You've probably seen a lot of trailers that work and don't work in terms of getting the film attention by either a distributor or their audience, depending what type of distribution. So, like, what makes a good trailer? <laughs> oh, gosh. It's funny because I manage the fellowship. I manage our creative distribution fellowship. And the first round is, you know, the essay questions and the trailer. And I immediately watch that trailer. Like, I'm just really excited to watch it. And our decisions are, like, really uh, impacted and affected by that trailer. And you would think that a fellowship that is supposed to help a filmmaker figure out marketing and distribution wouldn't be so hard on trailers because you could cut a new one with us, but it is the only shorthand we have to figure out what this, what the style of the film is, what the vision for the film is. Uh, for me, shorter trailers are better. I like to know the storyline. You know, abstract trailers aren't super helpful for me unless, unless the film already has a profile that I can follow. Uh, I don't necessarily need to see the most gorgeous shots in the trailer, but I do want to see um, everything that reflects the tone. If you can tell me whether it's a mystery, if you can tell me whether it's a comedy, if you can intrigue me with a question that's unanswered, that, that's helpful to me. And um, I had a, when we'd cut my trailer for my, for my film, my editor cut it, and we ended up using everything that was on the cutting room floor because we used very um, expositional parts, like, oh, gosh, I'm so lonely, and all these things that didn't make the cut, right? <laughs> because we were trying to tell the story of the film. Uh, but then when the distributor came in, they came in and cut a much more conventional genre romantic comedy trailer, which was um, much more effective, actually. So also, I guess a piece of advice is, if you are a genre film, it may help you to cut to genre standards. You know, go and um, reference the the touch points that a, that a that a romantic comedy really goes for. You know, show me the meet cute. Show me, you know, that things fall apart at some point. God, I am a suit. I'm sitting here and I'm like, I used to not be <laughs> like this. No, this um, but it's useful. true. It works. And it's unfortunate that it works because it'd be great to like live in a world with abstract, rich, interpretational trailers. 
but uh, it people, need, <laughs> people need shorthand and they're going to judge your film immediately. So, you know, put yourself in the, put your best foot forward so that you can communicate with them immediately. And do you also have conversations with them about uh, key art and stills and kind of yeah. ways to speak about the film in certain words and maybe not log lines, but kind of how are we describing it? How are we quote-unquote selling it to an audience yeah and that's like especially interesting at this very moment while we're at the festival the festival's going on because you know eric and i we go through we're trying to decide what films we won't even want to see here and we want to cover and really the only thing we have to go on there's no trailer yet it's just the still and it's just like the short synopsis it's super hard to write a good log line i still don't have a log line for my film that came out three years ago (laughs) um so like i don't know how it's done it's not something that i could ever consult on but uh you know, what we have seen are overly complicated log lines that tell you way too much. Uh, you're not going to be, uh, I'm trying to think of the way to say this, but like if you leave out a plot point in your log line, no one's, you're not going to get in trouble. You don't have to tell me everything, right? Um, and key art, we've heard rumors that like Netflix prefers ambiguous emotions in their key art. And so that's always something fun is like maybe, you know, do you have an onset photographer? You know, are they taking photographs that have that mystery quality Imagine, I need to those them? ambiguous emotions, right? please. Give me <laughs> so those weird. in full. Please. So it's a lot of Eric's emotions, yeah, yeah. naturally. I'm, I'm so. morally ambiguous <laughs> at all times, yes. I mean, this is just like this rumor that we just like jumped on and we're like, oh yeah, let's tell people about ambiguous emotions. <laughs> yeah. um, but just have um, an abundance of uh, stills to choose from so that the distributor can so they have options or so that you have options when you market your film is incredibly important. Um, you know, just having a stills photographer, photographer on set is one of those roles that you should really, you know, make sure you have. Very cool. So you had also mentioned unrest as one of the, as one of the films, it, you know, they were, sh- we were just talking about how they were shortlisted yeah. for an Oscar and should have been yes. nominated, but that's, I mean, I would love to hear about what kind of the strategy was with unrest. Well, just in general for the film? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Even around the time when it premiered, wasn't there an independent lens also came on board in some capacity for they had TV broadcast, broadcast deal. for deals? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, there are some things I can't say because they're being published in the case study. And it's funny, we're pro-transparency, but we're pro-transparency on our timeline. Right, right. Um, so um, a lot of their rollout and details of the rollout are going to come out in early March. Um, my teammate, Jess, Fusile is like in her condo right now writing it. Oh, cool. Um, but that will be exciting to read. Yeah, it's, it's really, um, I've read them and they're astounding. Actually, they're, uh, I'm going to call it right now, they're, they're groundbreaking. Um, I st- fast forward like three months and someone's going to be like, that idiot Liz, she, why did she say such things? Um, Unrest is a, a very powerful filmmaking team. You know, Jen Brea and Shala Films, she put together... You know, with Alyssa and Regina and every, you know, she put together a, like a, a force, really. And then she um, decided to do a youth, UK theatrical run and they she had some U.S. theatrical dates. And um, really, I think Jen's main goals uh, were impact. And so there was a lot. Uh, I mean, I don't even know how much I can say right now. But it <laughs> well, was if a you very have to, different If you need release. to save it, yeah, that's okay, too. A very different release. But uh, the film has a lot that could 
um, hmm, no, I'm just not going to say anything. <laughs> Starting sentences, yeah. I'm ending sure. them. We get, we'll follow up with you in March and, yeah. and find out. I guess even for that theatrical release, though, when Unrest opened, uh, was the were the filmmaking team doing specialized, eventized, if you will, screenings? And kind of what were they doing? Because if the main goal was to encourage action uh, to kind of what were each kind of, were there different plans for each night, different discussions after screenings and things of that nature? How did they engage the audience that they wanted to actually come out and see the film? Well, so uh, Unrest is a film about ME slash CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome. And so they had to have a very creative release because a lot of the the audience for the film who would have familiarity with chronic fatigue syndrome, maybe it's um, personal familiarity f- with it, are not um, as mobile. They're not, you know, so digitally um, that was a target for them to really focus on virtual screenings, the digital release, and then making sure all semi-theatrical events were completely accessible. And, you know, we've heard stories about making sure the temperature of the theater wasn't too cold, too. So, like, going so customized to make sure that the attendees uh, could enjoy the theatrical experience as much as possible because, you know, this was a movie for them, really. So they did, you know, a traditional theatrical run in addition to these eventized screenings. And when Jen was, or when there was a special guest at the screening, uh, you know, they did really, really well. I mean, they did well otherwise, but Jen is really the draw of the film. She's incredibly magnetic and powerful. And to hear her tell her story in person after a movie that's like so compelling, um, it was quite the draw. So the filmmaking team got to be really creative in that way and to encourage that kind of participation. Interesting. So I'm wondering a little bit about how filmmakers are supposed to know where when they're getting offers from distributors, whether it's all rights or different, you know, a broadcast deal. Sundance has sort of pioneered this concept of transparency and amongst filmmakers or is working towards that. And, you know, how what do you suggest for people if you're a filmmaker and maybe you don't have someone else with you on your team that is experienced or not? How do you know and how do you find out information sure. on what deals are, are good when they come up? Sure. We have the bet, we have the same piece of advice for distributors, sales agents, um, any sort of teammate, right? So we say go to their website, check out their slate, contact uh, filmmakers that they're not referencing, like contact the ones that are on their website, but not the ones that are like, talk to Jimmy. You know, don't talk to Jimmy. Talk to Susie around the corner. Uh, look at their slate of films and see if they're uh, reflective of the quality that you see your film as. Like, my joke is, if there's... And I am a big fan of big, busted vampire movies. Like, I don't want to, like, <laughs> knock them. Sure, sure. But if your film is a documentary on product fatigue <laughs> syndrome... That's, that's half of our audience. So right? just, we're speaking to a large group. <laughs> like, if you have a very substantial, like, heady documentary and you look at a sales agent's previous slate and it's, like, a bunch of you know, like trauma films, which are great. Again, trauma is fabulous. Just Just may not be documentary, right? May (laughs) not be the right fit for you. So we, um, highly advocate doing that due diligence. And what we say a lot is filmmakers will spill the tea. You know, if you got fucked over, you're going to tell everyone, you may say it's an off the record conversation and it will be, uh, but filmmakers will protect each other in that way. So to have as many conversations with clients of sales agents, clients of distributors, and really do your research. 
That's kind of interesting. Of do you encourage filmmakers to kind of come with you with case studies of like, well, my film is kind of like X, and the way they did it was this route. Maybe that's the route I should take as well. Do you encourage them to kind of see how other films similar to theirs may have gone that route? Reach out to those. Yeah. People? Or is that you putting it in research, a box? Yeah. I mean, from I've only been in the world of distribution for like five years now, right? And from what I'm seeing and from what I think a lot of people see is there's just a lot of patterns and it is audience building and having direct contact with them and establishing a voice and making the best deal that's customized for you. And there's these kind of just mainstays you hear over and over again. So if you talk to another filmmaker, they're probably not going to say anything that's super surprising, but, um, but just even having the conversation is homework right? Is you thinking about it for an hour. So that's why we advocate for it. And also we are huge um, supporters of innovation and, you know, experimental marketing. We really love uh, anything experiential, anything that's like grassroots, anything where like, um, I'm sure, I don't know if you guys have talked about this, but we always bring up Dave Made a Maze by Bill Watterson and how, you know, all these theaters encourage the building of uh, cardboard mazes in their lobbies or in association with the screenings. So any sort of like atypical marketing moves, maybe you could start brainstorming um, with other filmmakers when you have those conversations. Yeah, and Eric, when you were at IFP and you worked with Screen Forward, I mean, was that something that you, what did you do with your filmmakers who? Uh, we would always kind of ask them as well what the, goal was for their theatrical release because of course being a nonprofit, there were, there was a revenue sharing agreement but at the end of the day it was not necessarily uh to make much financial uh, rewards off of the the run it was kind of like a career building career continuing Launching exactly for the director. Kind of cycle so oh i want the I really want to open New York, get a New York Times review, the Village Voice, all that coverage that would come with having a seven-day, week-long run in New York. Um, that I'm after that, like we'll see what happens. But I maybe kind of finished with this film, and I see this as the kind of final point on this story. And now I want to kind of move on to the next one. Uh, others would have would get great, great coverage from that New York run, and then they would take it on the road if they would as they continue on and it may be a film like um astray which is takes place in um minneapolis and that would be where they may have more well-attended screenings uh but because of opening new york it incurred it brought about more attention so once that went further and wider and my grandparents heard about the film then we could now say okay now we can be a little bit more targeted now that we've had a little bit more blanket marketing by opening in a major city. Um, do you see that filmmakers still want to have that desired, if it is desired, New York, LA kind of opening or just traditionally, or if that's not where they're at? We hear about that a lot. And I mean, New York, from what I hear, the intel I hear is that people are still going to the movies in New York and really embracing, you know, that the theatrical distribution of, of titles. Um, LA, I mean, I'm a, a movie pass subscriber. I, I flipping love movie pass. Maybe I shouldn't say that <laughs> in my field, but I'm a big fan. Um, and it has encouraged me to go to the movies more. Uh, but in general, people in LA are not going to the movies as much as in New York. So, um, that's some really, uh, uh, unhelpful anecdotal evidence from a consumer's point of view. Filmmakers are looking to the LA, New York, theatrical run situation when they're 
in my experience, when they're thinking of qualifying it. Like, that's what we hear most of all is like LA, New York, and then, you know, the print ad requirements, all the things that um, need to happen for an Oscar qualifying run. Uh, I have had a few friends who have, they've booked their own theatrical tour in like cities that they have had relationships in, and that has been effective. And then um, we're also big fans of like things like Tug and Gather and Crowdsource Theatrical. But in terms of like, I, I know you asked this before, and I know I'm not really answering your question, but um, what we're hearing, I'm not hearing a lot from filmmakers about specifics about theatrical runs ever. It's really like, I only hear about specifics when they have the resources to do these massive campaigns. Um, so that's why I'm being vague. No, yeah, I guess for something like <laughs> Columbus too, was it important to play in Indiana? Yeah, it's and very that important be, to play there. Yeah, yeah. I assume it'd be a much different experience than opening at say the IFC center like it did in, in New yeah. York. Uh, it would get different crowds, but one maybe a little bit more passionate, the homegrown oh, yeah. interest. There was, um, actually they had a whole, uh, Indianapolis team or Columbus, you know, for the Columbus run in Indiana. Uh, you know, I think the Columbus team, from what I remember, they put together a list of the cities that they thought were their target cities in relation to the, the filmmaking team and the audiences that they felt would embrace the work and ones that they had, um, you know, like maybe there was a film festival that the Columbus did really well at and they wanted to come back and, you know, serve that market a little bit better. So, uh, it's funny how anecdotal it is, though. Like, that was surprising to me. It's like, I have an uncle, and not for Columbus. This is just in general. Like, you know, the idea that people would say, well, I have this family member in Chattanooga, so let's, and they could help do outreach and, and um, communication, so let's do a theatrical event there. It's bizarre how sometimes, in general, um, decisions are made uh, really from little evidence, It'd be great if we could kind of stockpile more data on what audiences want and what theatrical audiences are, are clamoring for. I'm wondering what's sort of the difference between, you know, because one thing Eric was just mentioning about the reason you want a theatrical run in New York or LA is to get a review, an important review. I mean, what's, can, when you play a festival like Sundance, there's people writing reviews. Is there a difference between the type of review you get out of Sundance versus a longer theatrical run? Well, um, it all comes from the relationship you have with your publicist and what kind of work they're doing on your film. Most people come to Sundance. I'd say all filmmakers come to Sundance for the publicist, for their festival publicist, and that publicist works you know, their ass off to get great coverage for the film. What is sad is a few years ago when they changed that policy in New York, right? Um, Where it's not guaranteed. It used to be because there would be a lot of films that would be We'd almost say like vanity runs of four-walling, paying a theater to run their film five times a day for a week. And so then the New York Times would have to cover it, and that led to a lot of films that maybe weren't uh, up to snuff to have a theatrical run in New York. It's like whoever could afford to have one. Exactly. It would just play in empty theaters for the whole week, but that would get that New review. York Times. That, like, that's yeah, so exactly. Cool. To have that for your, you know, for your film, that career sustainability could perhaps help you. And the theatrical release, you're almost taking a wash on by paying for the coverage in a way, yeah. you know? Well, yeah, and um, just uh, from our vantage point, theatrical is really tough for filmmakers. So, yes, Columbus broke a million dollars at the box office, but I would say that's an anomaly for titles this year. And um, Just in general, if unless the filmmaker is just hell-bent on doing a theatrical, we do, do try to encourage them to focus their attention on digital 
audience building, maybe those semi-theatrical events. And just to define, because I don't think we ever did, you know, semi-theatrical or special event screenings. Are those like one-off events where you just, you know, you rent a theater or you have some sort of booking, but it's just one night and you, uh, you create an event around it, right? So those are things that actually do very, very well, like you alluded to earlier, Eric. But like in general theatrical, unless you're really going to pack that week with special guests and Q&A and interactive events or a VR installation or whatever it is, uh, it's really tough. Yeah. And have you found when the films then do make their digital uh, debuts, uh, if I'm a filmmaker, when do I feel that uh, this release is nearing its conclusion, if you will. I mean, of course, it will exist forever in many digital capacities, but maybe I feel like I've gone as far as I can on this journey. I'm looking to move on. When do I know that I can come to a conclusion that's satisfactory for me as well as the film? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, well, as putting the filmmaker hat back on, <laughs> um, my film was released by The Orchard, and gosh, I don't know. Um, I'm not allowed to say the term length, uh, but it was you know, only a few years. And I would say that's a good barometer. Um, you know, don't be, don't be scared off. It's not going to be 10 years of marketing your film, but also, <laughs> you know, like transactionally, um, transactional doesn't really bring in a lot of revenue either. And it does taper off after like the first, I mean, really after the first two weeks, but it tapers off, you know, I would say, uh, more permanently after the first few months. Mm -hmm. So every once in a while, there's some special event associated with your right. film. Maybe you, you get a 99 cent rental on yeah. iTunes or you get to be put in a bucket that's like, you know, holiday movies yeah. or whatever it is. Relevant for Valentine's Day. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, that's, that'll give you a boost. Uh, but our big thing is uh, filmmakers should be getting all their ducks in a row to promote the live date, to promote the premiere, because that is the highest... Uh, that's like the momentum is right there. And then it, it does unfortunately die off. Uh, so I would say you're going to know. Um, if you have a distributor who's being transparent with you about reporting, you're going to see a major drop off. And if you don't have a distributor who's transparent with you, um, that trans that distributor sucks. <laughs> and um, not as a Sundance employee, but as a filmmaker, I'm saying that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, you'll also kind of, I think you'll feel the lull uh, one way or another, unfortunately. So I have a request of you, and maybe this is just too tedious, but, uh, you know, I was wondering if you could, you know, in the position you're at, looking at what's happening now, talk to us about who the players are um, in distribution because there's all these different people here at Sundance and I'm a filmmaker and I write for No Film Squad and I try to keep on top of everything but it gets very confusing who's doing what and you know yeah. is it even feasible for me to say hey so can you just give us a breakdown of like all the players well I can just speak on it um, I can try uh, I, I can't give you a list of names and companies. I just feel like I would forget one and then feel real bad for the next two months. Uh, but I can say, you know, there's these larger all rights distributors. There's these massive studios that may come in and either, um, you know, acquire by a title or come in with a title already um, under their purview. There's the mid-level distributors who may also be all rights, but um, their license fees are going to be... Uh, middling or, you know, maybe a fraction of the budget of the film, and they may not have enough resources to do a theatrical run, right? 
Um, there's the distributors I'm more acquainted with, which are like the digital distributors and aggregators that most likely are probably not expecting much out of Sundance titles. Like I would assume they're not um, sending their blanket emails to Sundance films, but maybe they are. And those are the film, those are the distributors that they don't put a lot of effort into marketing the title. And really they just offer an opportunity to do the work to get your title onto platforms that are open, like iTunes, Google Play, um, uh, Amazon Video, and uh, Xbox, things like that. So, like they'll encode your film for you the exactly. right format, and they'll they have a relationship with that person, with that company. And well, those are all open platforms, so really anyone can do that if they gather enough people together. You can become an aggregator, but um, the difference in the spectrum of this lower level. I don't like to say lower level because of this more digital focused distributor um, is that some of them do have relationships with Hulu, Amazon Prime, um, Netflix, Sundance Now, you know, all these fabulous uh, platforms. Um, and then you do have the opportunities for a spectrum of license fees from these digital distributors. So I don't know if that's helpful, but there seems to be like three tiers and maybe some you know, outliers in between, but it usually has everything to do with how much marketing muscle they're going to put behind the film and then how much the onus is on you to do all of that work. Interesting. So maybe the the last thing I'll ask you, because okay. we've already held you too long oh and God. we have more questions, but <laughs> oh um, looking at, the, so we're at the beginning of 2018, so much, so many exciting films are playing at Sundance. What are some things that you're excited to see or that you're hoping to see happen that could happen in 2018 in terms of filmmakers and new possibilities for distributing their films? Uh, I don't know if this answers your film, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> I mean, answers your question, but I'm just going to do it. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit tired of filmmakers coming to us and saying things like, you know, marketing's not my job, or I'm the creative, or I don't know business, or whatever, whatever the phrase is. I'm sure you guys hear it all the time. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm just here of hearing it. Like filmmakers, we can all think it inside. It's just hard to hear it because, and I've said this before, but filmmakers, we are business people. We will our work into being. That takes a lot of prowess and intelligence and sense. And I hate hearing filmmakers kind of undervalue themselves. So I really want to live in a world next year where filmmakers are like, I want to get involved. What can I do? How can I help? Don't just take my film and walk away. Let me be a part of this process of distribution. That's what we're trying to do with our fellowship. And um, that's what we're trying to do as a department. So maybe I can you know, sum this up as, if anyone wants to talk to us, we're trying to be open. We're trying to be communicative. We're trying to open the gates a little bit in our department and just email us. Like we actually really love emails and we answer them all the time. Um, so just email creative distribution at sundance.org. Or if you want to talk to me, just filmmaker to filmmaker, you could just find me on, on Facebook, Twitter, or just write lizmanishallgmail.com. And this isn't a plug. Like, we don't get any money. <laughs> um, that Gmail account really gets all those advances. <laughs> right. There's no, like, monetizing it right. in any way. Um, I just, we want to be a resource, and um, we want to know what filmmakers are curious about and to write pieces to answer the questions that filmmakers have so that they are more encouraged to get involved.
Yeah, that's awesome. And we really appreciate what you do. And Thanks. and we appreciate you being here and coming to talk to us today and answering yeah. our plethora of questions. Yeah, blanket apology if I if I totally fucked up and said <laughs> things that embarrass Sundance or uh, or are inaccurate we'll, we'll for distributors. Of, we'll have a list of corrections. At the <laughs> yeah, end please of the do. I'm like <laughs> starting to add them up in my mind right now. Um, <laughs> but you could follow up with me directly and we could have like an off the record conversation about um, all the things I screwed up on. No. <laughs> well, we, we appreciate it. And I know that you're coming out as from a filmmaker perspective right. as well as working with Sundance. So that candor and insight is really useful. So thank Thanks. you so much for talking to us. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for listening. You can check out links on No Film School to a few of the case studies that were mentioned in this conversation. And don't forget that you can tune in every week to podcasts like this, The First Feature, and Indie Film Weekly if you subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform.